0: Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler, and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one of the hardback black Bibles from under your chair. And if you're using one of those, it'll be page 1008. In my living room on the shelf, I have this really nice set of Bibles that Tama purchased for me about five years ago. Um, It's a six volume English standard version reader's Bible. And, And what that means is that it doesn't have any of the chapter or verse divisions that you might encounter in your standard Bible. It doesn't have section headings or or titles or any of that. It literally just has the Word of God outlined like you would see in any book that you purchased from Amazon or maybe Barnes & Noble. And there have been seasons where reading that Bible set has been very helpful for me. You see, the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bibles, um, they're not part of the inspired text. They were added for convenience long after the original manuscripts were written. In fact, the the chapter divisions were added in 1227 AD. And it was almost 300 years later that they added the verse divisions in the mid-1550s. I mention all of this because there are times where these chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles seem a little ill-placed. They seem, um, maybe they're causing a, a break in the, in the logic or in the flow of the argument that the author is writing that, that isn't naturally there. And in my humble opinion, the beginning of chapter 12 is one of those places Last week, we finished up Hebrews chapter 11. And what we saw as we looked at chapter 11 over the, our last few weeks in the book of Hebrews was our author working to show us what faith is and what faith does. And as we looked at that, the primary way that he did that was to list out all of these people who, were, who lived during the period that, that covers the Old Testament and showing us how their faith led them to do big things, led them to live out, things that God had called them to do. In fact, he listed more than 20 different people or groups of people whose faith caused them to move, whose faith caused them to do these big things. And what I worked to help you see last week was that with all of them, there were these common threads. There were these common characteristics of faith that was at work in all of them. So for every one of them, their faith led them to look forward. Their faith led them to endure to the end. And it didn't really matter whether that was a good ending or a bad ending. And their faith led them to move. Those were the three common threads that we saw last week in this chapter that championed the faith of all these men and women who have come before us. But even though we distilled those down to just those three points last week, I kind of want to undistill it if we could and see all of those people one quick time. So, so in chapter 11, our author mentioned all of these people who lived by faith. He listed Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the Exodus generation, and the prophets. He mentioned all of these people, and in mentioning them all, he told us that by faith, they did all of these big things. And then the chapter just ends. But the beginning of chapter 12 is connected directly to chapter 11. So as we come to the beginning of chapter 12 this morning, and in these two verses that we're going to look at today, what I want you to see our author telling us in essence is all of these people, all of these people that you just read about, they've all come before you. They've all modeled out the faith for you, what it looks like to have faith. But now, now it's your turn. So let's dive in. All these people—they've lived out their faith, but now the baton has been passed to us. It's our turn. So Hebrews chapter twelve, going to look at two verses. I know last week we did thirty-two. This is a little bit shorter. You ready? Okay, here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we get ready to dive into these two verses, as we get ready to see that, that living out faith isn't something for people in the past, but it's, it's something for us, as we get ready to understand that it really is our turn to live out our faith, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would help us to see that, that you would help us to internalize it and then, and then take it and move forward with it. Help us to live out lives of faith as we look at this text. God, we also ask that if there's somebody here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, we ask that you would do the work that only you can do, that you would change their hearts, that you would save them from their sin, that you would lead them into repentance. We love you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. I, I think most of you are aware at this point that I've had some pretty fun adventures in my career that I had in the Navy before I retired. And I think probably one of the most fun things I got to do on a fairly regular basis was strap on an F-18F Super Hornet and taxi out to the JBD, connect to the catapult, and launch off the front end of an aircraft carrier. It was a lot of fun. There's nothing like it that came before or since roller coasters are boring to me now. It, It was a lot of fun. But... There's a lot of things that have to happen in order to make that aircraft go from zero to 160 miles an hour in a second and a half and do it safely. Those catapults have to be set to the appropriate weight for the aircraft and the pressure for the steam piston that fires that has to be set appropriately. The wind that's flowing over the aircraft carrier flight deck has to be from the right direction. It has to be at the right speed. And of course, the jet's engines have to be performing at full capacity. And if any of those factors are not in place, when the jet gets to the end of that catapult track, more than likely that jet is not going to fly. We'll end up in the water. And it's for that reason that we have these things in the aircraft called emergency procedures or EPs. Now, we have EPs to handle situations that come up that need to be dealt with in a very timely fashion where we don't have time to think. We don't have time to break out a checklist and look at what to do. We need to react quickly. And the EP for an emergency catapult flyaway is throttles max, rudder full against yaw roll, emergency jettison button push, maintain 10 to 12 degrees pitch attitude with waterline symbol, do not exceed 14 units AOA, AOA tone. If unable to arrest yaw roll or stop settle, eject. That is the emergency procedure for a bad catapult event. And we recite that procedure every single time we cross the jet blast deflector as we prepare to connect the aircraft to the catapult shuttle. Every single time, but we shorten it down. We make it a little easier to say in a quick period of time they're in the jet. So what we say is max rudder jet set race for the handle. Max rudder jet set race for the handle. And that procedure saves lives. Because what it does is it puts the aircraft and the aircrew into a position to maximize the chances of that aircraft flying away in the event that any of those factors that cause the aircraft to fly aren't met. Max means that we're taking those engines and we're running them up to full combat afterburner. It's giving us our maximum thrust available to make the plane fly. Rudder is cueing the pilot to put in stick and rudder inputs necessary to counter any adverse yaw or roll that's created. It causes us to put our lift vector straight up so that the aircraft will climb. Jet means that we're hitting the emergency jettison button. When we launch off the front of the carrier, we have all kinds of weapons and stores hanging underneath our wings, and all of that is weight and drag that will pull us towards the water. And by hitting that button, it all just comes flying off instantaneously. And then set is setting the attitude of the aircraft to maximize our lift. That 10 to 12 degrees pitch attitude ensures that we're generating as much lift on those wings as we can to get that aircraft flying. And the final step is for the fact that we have between one and five seconds from the time we end that catapult stroke to the time the jet is in the water to make a decision to get out of the jet before we crash. Max Rudder Jet Set Race for the Handle is our emergency procedure that keeps us safe when we're operating from the aircraft carrier. And today, as we look at these two verses and we recognize that it's our turn to live out our faith, today, I want to give you a tool like that emergency procedure that will help us to live out our faith. So what I'm gonna give you guys today is an active faith emergency procedure, okay? An active faith EP. And because we're Baptists, guess how many points it's gonna have? three, right? It's going to be a three-step active faith emergency procedure. You guys ready? Okay, throw it up on the screen. This is our active faith emergency procedure. Drop, run, look. Can y'all say that with me? One more time, like you mean it. Drop, Drop, run, look. Okay, that is our active faith emergency procedure. Drop, run, look. Now with that, let's show you what each of those steps mean. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse one. Therefore, now stop. Let's see if y'all listen. First service got this. Whenever we encounter a therefore in the text, what do we do? You guys are listening. I love you guys. That's awesome. Whenever we encounter a therefore, we're going to ask that cheesy question, what's the therefore, therefore? And we're asking that question because it's causing us to pause and look backward. We're looking backward and recognizing that whatever we're about to read is coming directly from what we just read. So what this is telling us right here is that what we're about to read in these two verses, it's connected directly to all of chapter 11 that we just read. See, I told you that break, it's a little artificial. We we don't want that there, right? So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And we're gonna stop right there in the middle of the sentence because this is our first step in our active faith EP. Our author has been telling us all about the faith of all of these people who've come before us He's talked about everything that they've done, and now he's calling them a great cloud of witnesses. But they're not witnesses in the sense that they're watching us. They're witnesses in the sense that they are witnesses to the fact through their living out of their life, through the faith that they demonstrated in their lives, they're witnesses to the fact that we too can live out an active faith. And so our author starts by telling us, that since we're surrounded by all these people who've come before us and have modeled out what faith and action looks like, now we need to do something. And the something that we need to do begins with those two words, let us. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. That's it right there. There's our, our first step. That's our drop right there we need to drop, we need to lay aside the things that get in the way of us living out an active faith. And what we cannot overlook is that our author gives us two categories of things that get in the way of our active faith. Now, one of them is fairly obvious, I think, and that's sin. He says that we need to lay aside our sin. And of course, that makes sense. If we want to live a life of active faith, we need to lay aside our sin. We need to put it to death. That that makes sense. But what I want you to see is how he describes that sin. He describes it as sin which clings so closely. The NIV translation of this part of the text calls it the sin that so easily entangles. And I think that translation here is a little bit more helpful for us. Because sometimes that's, that's what sin does and we lose track of that. It entangles us. It, it holds us back from living out our faith. You see, our temptation is to think that sin isn't that big a deal, that it's not hurting anybody else. It's just me, so, so I don't need to worry about it. But the truth is our sin, regardless of how big or, or small we think our sin is, regardless of that, it's entangling us, it's, it's holding us back, it's keeping us from living the faith that's been set before us to live. You know, a few years ago, I, I visited my aunt up in the Fort Worth area. And while we were there, uh, I didn't really want to just sit inside because you know there wasn't a whole lot going on and watch TV all day. So I decided I'd help her out with some of her yard work. And on the south edge of her property, she had a a green belt and a bunch of trees, and those trees had become overgrown with these greenbrier vines. Now, the vines by themselves were not that big. I mean, like the the biggest one was maybe an eighth of an inch in diameter. They were small, kind of thorny vine that was growing up the trees. But what these vines would do is they'd, they'd climb the trunk, and then once they got to the branches, they would spread out to the branches, and then they would just get all interwoven into the branches And eventually what they would do is they would choke out those branches. The leaves from the greenbrier vines would actually block the leaves of the tree to the point where those trees, first their branches would die and then the whole whole tree was dead. And so we had to cut down three or four trees in her backyard there because those vines had had choked them out and had killed them and entangled them. And that's what sin does to us. It, It entangles us. It ties us up. So if we want to live out an active faith, then we have got to put that sin away. We've got to drop it. We've got to put it to death. But to me, that's the obvious part. To me, that's the easy part of what what he's telling us here. What's not so obvious is when he tells us to lay aside every weight. Because for the author, that, that weight is completely separate and distinct from the sin which clings so closely. Because what that's telling us is that there are things in our lives that are morally neutral, that in and of themselves are not sinful, that get in the way of us living out our faith every day. And he's telling us that we need to drop those things too. Now, I want you to think back to that F-18 example, launching off the front end of an aircraft carrier. When I launched for a combat mission, I would be carrying more than 6,000 pounds of additional stores, fuel, ordnance that we were gonna take. And those things hanging from the jet were good for the mission I was about to go on. I had to have those to do that mission. But if I got to the end of that catapult track and I didn't have the airspeed that we needed for our aircraft to fly, those good things in that moment instantaneously become a problem. They create drag that slows us down. They created weight that pulls us toward the water. And so if that happened, we had to jettison those stores immediately. We, we had to drop those weights that were pulling us down and it can be just as true in our everyday lives as well. There are things that are morally neutral, things that, that are not sinful, that, that can weigh us down and keep us from living out our faith watching Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, you name it, to a degree, is not sinful. There's nothing wrong with it. But does watching those shows or streaming those shows, does that get in the way of you opening up the word of God and reading does it get in the way of you spending time in prayer? I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm I'm asking, do these things that are in and of themselves, not sinful, get in the way of you doing the things that you've been called to do by God, to living out your faith? It's the same thing with social media. I know guys that have just said, you know what, I'm done with social media because of that reason. It's the same thing with hobbies. They're not bad until they are. And what makes this, So difficult is that what could be okay for me is not okay for you. What what could be bad for me is just fine for you. So about 10 years ago or so, I I used to be really into watching the news and keeping track of politics. Like Tama can tell you, I I would watch multiple news shows, go to multiple websites, just keeping track. That was very important to me that I knew everything that was going on in the world. And that's not wrong. There's nothing sinful with wanting to know what's going on in the world. But it was a problem for me. And I realized it one day because I I was at church and I I saw this person across the hall from me. And and my first thought about them was, I wonder how they're gonna vote in the next election. And in that moment, God just kind of crushed me because I cared more about their political persuasions than I did about whether or not they knew Jesus. And so for me, that had to change. That had to, to go away. I had to drop that thing right there. That, that wasn't helpful for me. So I had to go and it, and it wasn't easy. I had to drop that weight because it was getting in the way for me of living out an act of faith. And that's what our author is telling us here. He's telling us, drop anything and everything that gets in the way of you living out this faith that's been set before us, that entangles you, that, that holds you back. So that's our step one. Our step one is we're gonna drop every weight and sin. But I want you to look at the second half of verse one because there we see a second step in our active faith EP. Take a look with me. Our author continues and tells us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's our second step. There, there, there it is. We're going to run. Active faith, by definition, moves. We spent a third of the sermon last Sunday talking about the faith fact that faith has to move in order for it to be faith. So we're going to drop every weight in sin. We're going to run the race. But I want you to see how we're going to run the race. Look, look at, throw those verses back up there for me, would you? Tell me what is the key word in that verse that's gonna be, though, don't worry about it. Look at your Bibles. What's, what's the key word in those verses right there? What's the, key, what's the adverb that modifies how we're going to run? Endurance. With endurance. Endurance, say that out loud for me. Endurance. Come on, guys, you are here endurance, right? We're going to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose that he tells us we're going to run with endurance? Why doesn't he just say run the race that is set before us? The answer is the race is going to be long. It's not going to be a quick one and done. It's going to be something that is going to take some endurance. Now, y'all can look at me and you can know without a hesitation without a shadow of a doubt i am not a runner right can we like i'm not a runner i don't like running but that doesn't mean i don't know anything about running like like i know that there is a huge difference between short distance sprints and long distance endurance marathons and i know that there is a big difference between how the runner runs those races So a sprinter is gonna get out there and he's gonna expend all of his energy in a very short period of time in order to complete that race. But a long distance endurance runner has to ration their energy as they run over a significantly longer period of time. But that doesn't mean that he's not working hard as he runs. And in fact, I think a lot of people would argue that the endurance runners, the long distance guys, they actually have to work harder And that's sort of what this metaphor our author is using here is meant to show us. You see, the the Greek word translated as endurance here, it carries a weight behind it that that conveys an active perseverance. It it conveys conveys an idea that there's some struggle involved, there's some effort involved. It isn't passive endurance where you just hold on and don't let go. This this is like, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to work for it to the end, pushing and striving until you make it to the goal. That's how we're going to run this race of faith. And really quick, before we move on from this, I want you to notice the kind of end of that verse right there. I want you to notice the three words. Can we throw it up there again one more time? I want you to notice those three words at the end of this portion of the verse there. The race that is set before us. Do you see that? This race has been set before us. God has given us this race to run. It's not an accident that you are where you're at. God has put you in this place, in this season, in order for you to run this race. He set a race before you to run with an active faith. We've seen all of these others come before us. They've They've been championed as the heroes of our faith. They, they ran their races well, and now we remember them. But now it's our turn. And I think sometimes we'll look at the world around us and, and we'll think that the world is falling apart. We'll turn on the news and see what's going on there and, and, and see the state of our country. And we think that the world has just gone to hell in a handbasket. But but the truth of the factor is is God has placed us right here for this season for a reason. He's placed us here so that we can run with endurance. It's our turn. So run. Run. Don't, Don't let the craziness that's going on in the world keep you from running the race of faith. Run. God has put you here for a season, for a reason. Run the race. That's what we're seeing right here. If we're going to have an active faith, then we've got to run. But we have one more step in our active faith emergency procedure that I want you to see. We drop every weight in sin. We run the race with endurance. And then as we look at verse 2, our author tells us that as we do that, we're going to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the third step we take in our active faith EP is that we look. We look, but specifically we look to Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus. Now, Every step in an emergency procedure is there for a reason. There's there's a purpose behind each step, and this is no different. Because as we look to Jesus, we're going to accomplish at least three things. So verse 2 tells us um, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As we're striving to live out our active faith, we want to look to Jesus because when we do, we're reminded that Jesus is the founder of our faith and he's also the perfecter of our faith. In the Greek, that word there, founder, is "archagos." It it can be translated as founder, but it can also be translated as pioneer or, or leader. And so really what this is kind of showing us is that Jesus is like this trailblazing pioneer. Think of like the old West pioneers that crossed the country. They they blazed a trail that others followed behind them. And that's what Jesus has done for us when he walked this earth. Because Jesus showed us what a believing response to God looks like when he lived his perfect sinless life. You know, even though our author has listed nearly two dozen examples of people or groups of people who've, who've lived out active faith, I think it's interesting that as he's urging us to, to take the next step, as he's urging us to live out an act of faith, he doesn't tell us to look to any of them. Like he doesn't say, hey, look at Abraham. He doesn't say, look at Moses, look at David. No, he, he tells us to look to Jesus. Now, what do you suppose that is? It's because Jesus is the ultimate example of active faith. He came and, and he, he obeyed the will of God here on earth for us. But more than being that perfect, ultimate example of faith, he's, he's also the one who perfects our faith. And that's a word we don't use in our, our English. We don't talk about perfectors in our you know, regular vocabulary, do we? But but the meaning behind that Greek word is, is someone who comes along and he takes something and he brings it to its ultimate status. He brings it to completion, to a conclusion. And that's what Jesus did for us. You see, when Jesus's perfect obedience led him to that cross, it led him to lay down his life on that cross for ours. He brought our faith to its ultimate goal when he did that. His faithful obedience obtained perfection for us when we place our faith in him. So Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, which is why we look to him. But there's a second reason we look to him. You see, when we look to him, we're reminded that Jesus endured. And because Jesus endured, that's going to help us to endure. Look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the cross, and that helps us to endure. But how? A few weeks ago, right before our Good Friday service, I sat down with our team here in the church, and and we talked a little bit before the service about the cross. I I read this passage from, from a very academic book that, Talks about what the cross was really like, and I, I told them that in the 2,000 years since that day outside Jerusalem, we've we've cleaned up the cross, we've we've beautified the cross, and so it's sometimes easy for us to think about Jesus looking to the cross and having joy, but but the cross wasn't meant to instill joy. The cross was meant to instill terror. And if that's true, then then how can we look at this text right here and and ask the question, like, like, how is this lining up with what we've read elsewhere? Because if we read in the Gospels, we can read about how on that night before Jesus was betrayed, when he prayed in the garden, it says he was in agony, that that he sweat great drops of blood. That's an actual medical condition. It's called hematidrosis. I stumbled over that word. It's a hard word to say, but it's an actual condition that happens, and it's not caused by joy, it's caused by extreme stress. So, how could Jesus look to the cross and have joy before him in his mind? And how does that joy cause him to endure the cross? The answer is he knew what he was about to accomplish. He knew that when he went to that cross, he would bear the weight of our sin for us. He knew that when he went to that cross, he would be trading his righteousness for ours. He knew that when he went to that cross, he would be reconciling us, sinners though we are. He would be reconciling us to God, to himself. And that is the joy that was before Jesus as he looked to the cross. That was the joy that caused him to endure the cross. And when we recognize that, when we keep that in our view, as we look to Jesus, knowing that he endured so much for us, it will help us to endure. So we look to Jesus But there's a third reason that this last step in our active faith EP is to look to Jesus. And that third reason is because when we look to Jesus, we're reminded that he's already victorious for us. Look at the text one more time. Verse two, looking to Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, We've already established the fact that I am not a runner. Like, I don't like running. I, I, I hate it. I get it. There are some of you out there that think that running is the bee's knees. I, good for you. I'll pray for you. But I do not like running. But, but here's the thing. In 23 years in the Navy, every six months, with a few rare exceptions, I had to take a physical readiness test. And part of that physical readiness test, part of that PRT, was was that I had to run a mile and a half. And on almost all of those runs, with maybe one or two exceptions, I was absolutely miserable. I hated them. But there was one thing and one thing only that kept me going every single time I ran those runs, and that was the finish line. You see, I, I was in the Navy, I wasn't in the Army. I certainly wasn't in the Marine Corps. And and what that means is that the time requirements for that mile and a half run, they weren't really that bad. They're actually kind of easy. So as long as you kept going, you'd pass. And I knew that if I could just stare at that finish line and keep my eyes fixed on that finish line, look into that finish line, all I had to do was keep one foot in front of the other and I'd make it. So I'd fix my eyes on the finish line, and I'd stare, and I'd finish. If I started looking at the scenery, if I started looking at all of the people, and it was like everybody who was passing me, all of a sudden, that mile and a half run got infinitely harder for my chubby little legs to finish. But if I just stared at that finish line and kept my focus on the goal at the end, if I did that, somehow I could endure. And if I endured to the end, then I was victorious for the next six months. And it's even truer for us as Christians today. You see, Jesus has already finished this race, but more than finishing the race, he he won the race. He's already victorious. He's seated at the right hand of God, God's throne. He's right there at his right hand. And because he's already victorious, when we keep our eyes fixed on him as we run the race that he set before us, we know that we can have that victory too. So we look to Jesus because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We look to Jesus because his endurance, it helps us to endure. And we look to Jesus because he's already victorious for us. That's why we look to Jesus. But I began by telling you how closely chapter 12 is connected to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is is the faith chapter of the Bible. In it, we read about all these men and women who've come before us, who've lived out their faith. Men and women whose faith led them to do these these massive, these huge things for God, following in radical obedience. But the story of faith doesn't end with the end of chapter 11. The story of faith continues on. In the beginning of chapter 12, it's, it's showing us that now it's our turn. When we think about all of these Men and women who've come before us that are listed out in chapter 11. I think sometimes we, we think about them and they've kind of been lionized. They're, they're these great heroes of the faith. But do you realize how messed up they all are? Like they're all a bunch of broken sinners. Like we, we couldn't hire them to work here at the church. Like we'd be a thanks. No. I mean, think about it, Abraham. Dude lied on multiple occasions about the fact that he was married. Like more than once said, No, that's my sister. Right? Moses. He murdered a guy. David. He's right there. He's a hero of the faith. David had an affair. When he thought he was going to get caught, he had the husband of that lady murdered. Like Uriah the Hittite dies because Bathsheba's pregnant and David's going to get caught. But that guy's a hero of the faith. These dudes are messed up. They're broken sinners. All of these people, every single one of them is broken but they're sinners who had faith. And because they're sinners who had faith, who lived out that faith, who ran the race 2,000 years later, we're still reading about them. Some of them were 1,000 years before this was written, like 3,000 years, and we're still reading about these people. And that should encourage us. Because if God can use people who I think it's safe to say, are at least as broken as we are, maybe more. If he can use them, he can use us too, right? Like, don't don't let that get in the way. You see, it's our turn. We've been called to be a people of faith, active faith, radical faith, enduring faith. So how are we going to have that kind of faith? How are we going to live that active faith out? We can use our radical or our active faith EP. We can drop every weight and sin that binds us up and holds us back. We can run with endurance the race that is set before us and we can look at Jesus as we do, who's the perfect example of faith for us. He's the perfect champion of faith for us to follow. Drop, run, look. It's our turn, church. Like we were created for this season. It's our turn to live out our faith. So let's do it. You think we can do that? Okay, let's pray. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.